This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Raising the perfect child. Hey, you know what? It's our dream as parents. But here's the reality. The perfect child doesn't exist. Yet, parents everywhere are putting the full court press on their kids to be perfect. We're fixating on raising them to be smarter, faster, more successful, and more popular than their peers. And that is making today's parents and their children completely crazy. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with nationally syndicated humor columnist and author Lisa Sugarman. And she's got an important message for us, which is that our kids aren't supposed to be perfect, and neither are we. They're going to screw up. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to lose their way. And as soon as we embrace the idea that parenthood is not a straight line, we will unlock everyone's full potential. Besides being the perfectly imperfect mother of two, she's got more than a decade of working in the school system. And she's going to unravel some of the biggest myths that are facing parents. And she's got plenty of advice and strategies to help soothe anxious moms and dads. We just have to remember that parenthood is a work in progress. I'm Armin Brott. We'll start talking about how to break ourselves free of all the knots and anxieties that limit us as parents when Positive Parenting continues right after this. When I was little, I didn't talk for a long time. I was sensitive to lights and sounds, so I built secret hiding places where they couldn't get in. Sometimes I do the same things over and over, until one day I found out I had autism. My family got me help. Slowly, I learned how to live with it better. Early intervention can make a lifetime of difference. Learn the signs at AutismSpeaks.org slash signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Lisa Sugarman, who's the author of Untying Parent Anxiety, 18 Myths That Have You in Knots and How to Get Free. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Armin. Why myths? <laughs> I think because they're so relatable. I think people tend to have one idea, image in their head, and they get bogged down by those images. And if we debunk a bunch of myths, it makes things, I think, a little less scary. And there are a lot of them in the world of parenting and raising kids. So I think the, you know, the more level-headed we can go into it, the better off we're going to be. <laughs> so what do you think the biggest one is? I, I, I was guessing from reading through the book overall that it's going to be you don't have to be perfect. Or I guess the myth would be no. you have to be perfect. Right, exactly. That well, that's the kind of the big overarching myth is that right. you know we all kind of you know have our new baby in our arms and and we're all totally committed to you know getting it right, saying it right, doing it right, and it never goes down that way at all. In fact, it's usually the total opposite of what that looks like in the beginning, and we just kind of have to embrace that. I, I, so I think as our kids get older, or at least what I've what I've seen with my own kids is that the biggest myth is that. You know, your kids are, are going to hate you. They're, they're really going to hate you for saying and doing everything that we say and do. And to a point, that myth is true. But 
you know, there's there's some debunking in there too because yeah. they do thank you for it. They, you know, they need they need the help is yeah. bottom line, and we're the ones that are supposed to help them. Well, I'm curious about this thing. I mean, just to ask you and just thinking about it myself, you know, it's like for for generations, people have been telling each other, oh, take it easy, don't worry about it, your kids are resilient. Why is this thing about being perfect so persistent? I mean, it makes perfectly good sense that there's no possible way to do it right, but we put so much pressure on ourselves and each other and... You know, it's got to be done right, or your kids are yep. going to grow up to be serial killers, or you know, whatever it is. You know, I, I think, and again, this is from kind of the soccer mom's perspective. There's so much competition out there. There's, I think, as much competition amongst our kids as there is amongst you know the whole parent population. And yep. you know, people are just trying to outdo everybody around them. And I think that pressure, the trickle down effect. It hits our kids and it stresses them out because we're all wound up. We have to compete as parents and be on point in every possible way, and we're kind of we're kind of projecting that onto our kids that they do the same thing. So I think, you know, society as a whole is just completely wound on a level that it's never really been wound on before. At yeah. least not certainly not since I've been a parent. Well, about a year ago, I interviewed a woman who used to be an admissions director at one of the Ivy colleges. And she was telling me these horror stories about kids whose parents come in with them to the interviews, kids who call up who uh, the parents who call up the professors and and argue yeah. about grades. These are college kids, and yeah. on and on and on. And and I was so pleased to see one of your myths, number two, actually. My kid will never make it out in the real world without me. Right. What and I mean, I guess that's that's not a, that's driven from within or I mean that's it's so absurd it's laughable in a way but then you realize oh my god there are people who actually believe this oh you're actually in my in my own opinion and my own you know my from my own vantage point you're actually a minority if you can let your kids go it alone let them fall out of the tree not from too high but let them fall <laughs> some you know what i mean i mean they have to fail they've got to figure out how to pick themselves up and you know there's we're living in a society of enablers in, in every possible way. And, and I won't sit here for a second and say that I haven't, you know, done things for my kids along the way to help them and, and make certain things easier. But, you know, we're, we're constantly, my husband and I are constantly trying to, you know, to motivate them and encourage them to do stuff for themselves because, you know, I don't want to be that mom sitting outside, you know, the admissions director's office, <laughs> um, you yeah. know, peeking through the door like, wait, honey, you forgot to tell him something. You know, you, you can't be that, that parent, but there's such a compulsion to be. And it yeah. all goes back to what we talked about five minutes ago, about having your kids be perfect and excel and overachieve and, you know, be the ones at the Ivies. And I, you know what, yeah. honestly, Armin, I want to have a kid with a high EQ. I, I get that you know, your, your report cards are important, and, and obviously education is, is, you know, it's huge and it's vital and it's necessary, and we are major supporters of that in our house. But I want a kid who can shake your hand and look you in the eye and be a good friend and know how to take care of themselves. And that's not as factored in anymore as it used to be because it's, parents' heads are getting cluttered with all the other stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I've, I've said kind of half-jokingly over the years that, rubber mats on playgrounds or ha have completely ruined childhood because yeah. kids are they're just not getting a skin knee anymore it's which i think builds so much character but, you know there's another one of these um number four my and where did, where did it go number three drop-off disasters are inevitable and I, that just hit me because i remember when my oldest kid f 
first one, of course, you do all sorts of bizarre things with. When I dropped her off at preschool, I went in with her and I sat with her and I drew with her and, you know, just doing all sorts of, of nice, warm things to say goodbye. Because sure. I, thought, I thought that she was going to need that. She needed me to be there. And I did that probably for months. And then one day I had to rush right after dropping. I could, didn't have a chance to, to do the usual routine of the drawing and all this other stuff. And I get back and I pick her up later on in the afternoon. And I thought, oh, I'm going to hear horror stories from the teacher. Nothing. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. And I thought, wow. I, <laughs> I mean, I realized that part of that was for me. Well, probably yeah. most of it was for me. But... You know, there's this myth that uh, that there's going to have to be some disaster when you drop your kids off at preschool. Right. And I but I think what that really is in a lot of ways is us projecting our sadness or our longing or, you know, this big, massive change onto the situation. And so we just automatically make the assumption that our kids are going to flip out if we're not with them and that they can't survive and they can't make it. And I think it may be tilted a little bit more the other way, like we're the ones. And I remember, and if you've, if you've read that chapter, you know that in that chapter I completely own the fact that when we dropped her, our oldest, off at kindergarten, I walked down the hill of the preschool, you know, tears running down my oh, cheeks, yeah. like, what am I going to do now? And she's going to forget about me before nap time or, you know, and you, you just, you get crazy in the head. And I think that's a big part of what's wrong with parents today, especially younger parents. And I don't, I don't blame them for that. I was like that because it's the unknown. Like there, I mean, obviously I wrote a book, but it's not the book. There isn't a yeah. book. It's, you know, it's, it's the weirdest sensation that we are totally responsible for another human being and the coaching and the teaching and the care and the, you know, the nurturing. And yet, the, you know, there, there's no end all be all guide. It's fly by the seat of your pants and you right. just got to cross your fingers and hope you're doing it right. You really do. Well, you know, the tough part of this is, and you probably have the same feelings. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it differently if I had to go back. I mean, knowing what I know now that it would have been fine. She would have been fine. I don't think I would change anything. No, I think I, I think I absolutely agree with you 100% because, you know, I mean, the fact of the matter is oftentimes it, I think it's our screw-ups that make the biggest impression. Like when we can say, okay, I just blew that as a mom completely. Um, I overreacted or I underreacted or whatever the, the situation may be. Um, those imperfect moments, I think, are the ones that we ultimately can build on the most because they're teachable moments. They're showing our kids yeah. that they're not supposed to be perfect. We certainly aren't going to be perfect. And the, the biggest challenge and I think the biggest success is being imperfect and shaking it off and moving on and doing it better the next time. Yeah, I think that's, that's one, of the, one of the tough things is to, to bounce back from that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So... Here's another one, and this kind of gets out to the teenage years or pretty much any year in between. If I punish my kid, she'll hate me. And I think <laughs> that is, is, has led to all sorts of terrible things going on in, in society with the, the lack of discipline or lack of taking responsibility. It's, kinda, it, it's similar in a way to, to needing to be there to pick up your kid every time they fall. That, you know, I, I don't want to do anything that's going to make them uncomfortable or anything like that. What, why do we realize? Why do we think that? I mean, it didn't. You know, I think I think we think that because deep down under everything that we're doing, we have this incredible desire to be our kid's best friend. We want to be the coolest one. We want to be their best buddy. We want to be their confidant. And we don't want to we don't want to upset that 
arrangement. And when we do something that they don't like, they get pissed off. And yeah. we catch that. You know, we, we, we catch the back end of that. And, you know, there, there is that whole idea of, you know, I want to be my kid's friend, but we can't. It's a constant struggle. It's, it's a, you know, we're all always balancing between, you know, trying to do right by them and trying to be fair and also giving them boundaries. And it's unfortunate that I see, I'm sure I see as many people as you see day to day, um, and especially when I worked in the school system for so long, parents who just, their kids are just bulldozing over them. There's no yeah. sense of um, accountability. There's no uh, guidance even. There's, you know, there's certainly no consequences. And you know, kids are behaving like animals in almost any kind of a situation. And you just have to look at, at you know, you take a step back and say, it's, it's so unfortunate because it's not the kid's fault. It's really, that's completely 100% on us. I mean, we've yeah. all gone easy on our kids at times, but um, the reality is they're going to hate us anyway. I mean, it really right. is not. You get to the teen years and forget it. You're lucky if you've got five good minutes with your kid in six months. Lisa Sugarman's the author of Untying Parent Anxiety, 18 Myths of Have You in Knots and How to Get Free. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Lisa and get into some of the other myths. I'm Armin Brat. You're listening to Positive Parenting. WWE superstar Alberto Del Rio. Take one. Behold the angry giant. Try it again, Alberto. Behold the angry giant. Perfect. Good luck tonight. Behold the angry giant. Yay! Read me another one, Dad. This is WWE superstar Alberto Del Rio. It only takes a moment to make a moment. Take time to be a dad today. Visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Lisa Sugarman, who's the author of Untying Parent Anxiety, 18 Myths That Have You in Knots and How to Get Free. So let's, what, what are some of your other favorite ones? I don't want to pick them all here. You know, I think one of my all-time favorites, I would have to say, is, you know, that um, kids should be seen and not heard. That that myth that they've got to be, you know, quiet and reserved and well-behaved. And and to a degree, yeah, of course they do. We, you know, we, we want to raise kids that have a, a sense of appropriateness, especially when they're with other people. But when you read that chapter in the book, it talks a lot about how my favorite quality in my kids is their snarkiness, their ability to just fling it in a well-timed, appropriate way and be funny and be a little sarcastic. And I think it's a gift when your kids can, can banter like that. And I think by far, not only is it my favorite chapter to go back and reread, it's definitely, um, it's my favorite one in the book. Okay. Yeah. Well, all right. Here, so here's one that I'm going to argue with you on a little bit. Okay. That's, That's okay. the very last one. Well, of course. Yep. Uh, our kids are born pre-wired with their temperament and attitude. I, I don't know. I started when I, years ago, probably 20-something years ago, started looking into temperament and talked to the Chases, Stella and Chase, uh, who, who kind of the people who came up with this whole temperament thing. And I think that that's dead on, that kids are born with a certain type of temperament, whether it's slow to warm or whatever it is, and they're pretty consistent that way. 
you're you're not seeing that, I guess. No, I no, I do see that. I really do. And and what I do explain in that chapter is that you know that they're they're also a mixture of a product of their environment too, because you know you you can't grow up under someone's roof with someone's influence and with someone's, I guess you know rules and expectations and behaviors and modeling and not have any of that rub off on you and your personality as a whole. So I, I think that, yeah, I, I think that we definitely have some pre-wiring that just comes out when we come out. But, you know, it's almost like that, the master board, the motherboard that's there when you buy the computer and then you're kind of doing a little bit of adding on here and there and upgrading. Sure. I think that's kind of just, just to make it an analogy, that I think is what's happening. And uh, yeah. Yeah, there, I think there it's is kind of the, a combination. There is the nurture part that goes in there somewhere. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Can't, you can't really factor that out, but I just thought it was interesting. Uh, technology is not wrecking our kids. And, and I mean, it's, it's frustrating as a, as a parent to hear this constantly, you know, oh, I don't let my kids have cell phones or whatever it is. And you're just swimming upstream with that one. Yeah, you are. I mean, you know, it's, it's a necessary evil. It's, you know, it's, it's what's around us. It's where society is right now. It's the generation that my kids have grown up in. It's, you know, certainly wasn't our generation, but it's, it's what my kids have grown up with. And, you know, there's a point where we have to embrace it. I mean, there, there's some good things about it and bad things about it. When my daughter is, you know, off at college and she takes an Uber at 1 o'clock in the morning and I know she's home safe, that's a beautiful thing about technology. You know, or when someone can text me and, and we have that line of communication and I know everybody's good and, and you know, you, or you get the SOS when you need one. Um, that, that's where it's a benefit. Otherwise, it drives me personally clinically insane that <laughs> it's like another part of the body. It's, it's just, you know, it's, it's like, you know, an extra hand or right. it's just part of the, that wiring, physical wiring that it's always there. And that can be intrusive. But, it, you know, that, that goes back to the whole you've got to set limits. And even my own kids know at this age, one is almost 20 and the other, my youngest, is almost 17. They, don't, they won't bring a phone out in a restaurant unless it's like an emergency. They won't bring it out at the dinner table. And then, you know, and, and it all goes back to just saying, look, right. we, you know, we can appreciate that this is part of your life and your peers' lives, but you've got to have a boundary. And, Absolutely. And it's our, yeah, moderation. Yeah, it's our job to enforce it. Yeah, it's, it's like anything. You know, it's got an upside, it's got a downside. Yeah. You know, I, I really like number nine also, <clears throat> that we are all speaking the same language. And I remember having this discussion not long ago with my, my youngest, who's just turned 14 a couple of days ago. And oh, she, say. you know, we're talking about like simple words, things yeah. like freedom or, you know, free speech or rights or things like that, you know, the, the kinds of conversations that you have a lot these days. Sure. And they just, the, the, you think that you understand what freedom means, but it, it's, when you start thinking about it, it, it's completely ridiculous to try to even define something or to, to assume that whatever it is that might, what I'm saying freedom is, is what somebody else believes it is. Right. They, un, you know, they understand theoretically the meaning of the word because we're speaking English, but it's so open to interpretation. So if you run around assuming that your kids are understanding what you say when, you know, I want you to get, get back here right after school, well, what does that mean? Does that mean, you know, an hour after school or three hours after school or, you know? Right, and, and what we're, you know, our definition, yours and mine, is almost guaranteed to be something extremely different from theirs just by virtue of, you know, the generation gap and, you know, what their 
you know, what their friends and peers are used to. So, you know, we, we've already got that, that built-in gap involved in how we communicate with each other. So it, it makes it challenging, for sure. So kids being too immature or too little for chores, it's kind of, in a way, looping back to the whole thing about you know, not letting kids fail or yeah. uh, that, that kind of thing where we just have this low bar that we set for the kids. And we do essentially what we can to ensure that they never get over that bar. Um, what, what do you do about that? I mean, how do you begin to look at your kids as more competent? You know, I don't, I don't think it's an easy thing to do because when they're your kids, they're always little, I, I guess, in some ways, up to a certain point, they're, you know, you're the one who's so used to taking care of them for such a long period of time in the beginning that you really have to kind of kick yourself in the butt a little bit when they get to that point where they're capable. And, and it's different with, with every child, and it's different in every family dynamic, but you know, there are some general guidelines uh, in, in terms of, you know, once, once they're old enough to, you know, to, to, to walk and talk and feed themselves and put clothes on, you know, you, you give them little chores and, and you do your best to maybe, maybe a schedule works for your family or, um, you know, maybe an allowance works for, for your house. But, it, I mean, there are always things that we can have our kids do that are, that are just easy and accessible, like you clear the dishes and throw your clothes in the hamper and learn how to run a load of laundry and, uh, you know, get out in the yard and, and pick up leaves, rake leaves, you know, walk the dog. There, there are little things, but it becomes, you know, it's funny, we're giving them jobs, but it becomes our job to police that, not really police it, but to enforce it because it, it just makes them more capable in the long run. Yeah, it really does. and I think when you when you have this discussion with somebody and you you talk about that 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 by not giving them jobs or you're you're essentially saying I don't think you can do this, right? And how else are they ever going to learn how to do it? I mean, people this is the same people who don't think that their kids are competent are very often the ones who talk about how they had jobs when they were six years old or whatever it was, and you think, well, geez, you know, how how did that happen? Because yeah, and I, I remember, you know, even even along with all of that, it's just the idea that by, you know, by giving your child a chore or a job or whatever you want to call them responsibility, you know, it's our way of saying we really trust you. And, and it, it's a huge feeling for a kid. I remember even getting little jobs in, in my neighborhood, paper routes or whatever, walking someone else's dog. That's empowering stuff for a young kid to feel like they're being trusted, whether it's a neighbor or a family member, a friend. That's that's powerful stuff, and that, in my case anyway, led to me wanting to do more. I wanted to have a job when I was 12 years old, whatever I could do. And I think when you give a child an opportunity to explore what they can do and put a little trust in them, they'll, they'll always raise the bar for themselves. Absolutely. So we had 18 here in the book. What were some of the ones that didn't make the cut? Oh, boy. You know what? I... I God, I... I I don't, I'm not even sure that I know of one. Um, you know, I would have to say probably the, the co-sleeping, ah, which I, okay. I the, that co-sleeping, you know, if you, if you do that for, for too long, your child's never going to sleep in the bed. They're never going to get off on their own. They're never going to go in their own room. That was one of the ones that I kicked around for a while. And uh, it just didn't make it in the book. But I, I, I had both my kids. You know, I nursed both my kids, and I think it's a great bonding experience. And, and when, when you feel it's time, you know, you push, you kind of, 
push them their way in the direction that they're supposed to go. And it might be painful, you know, like taking away the pacifier is painful if that's what you've done. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like anything, you know, you, they eventually shake it off and move on and grow into it. So that was one that did not make it into the book. All right. Lisa Sugarman's the author of Untying Parent Anxiety, 18 Myths That Have You in Knots and How to Get Free. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. Great oh, thanks, Armand. I'd love being here. Thank you. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. It only takes a minute to find out if you may have prediabetes. And you can do it at doihaveprediabetes.org. But you're probably not going to, are you? Kids, work, listening to the radio. You're busy, which is great because busy people can't get prediabetes. Oh my, I read that wrong. (laughs) They can. Should have worn my glasses. So visit doihaveprediabetes.org and take a short test because prediabetes can be reversed. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. If you've got a teenager, you know that there's a tremendous amount of pressure on them these days. And there's also a tremendous amount of pressure to use substances to help them through some of these difficulties. And that's the topic of this week's Ask Mr. Dad. Dear Mr. Dad, I have been noticing kids who look much younger than high school age buying Frappuccino-style drinks at Starbucks and similar coffee places. It worries me because I didn't think caffeine was good for children and didn't allow my own son to have it when he was a teenager. Is coffee really bad for children? If so, what's your advice to parents whose children can buy their own snacks after school? You are absolutely right. Caffeine and children don't belong in the same room. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration says that for adults, 300 to 400 milligrams a day, that's about three cups of coffee, is generally safe. But the FDA hasn't established safe levels for children. Most pediatricians, however, say that children under 12 shouldn't have any caffeine and kids 12 to 18 shouldn't consume more than 100 milligrams a day. Those recommendations, of course, haven't stopped kids from getting it. In fact, about 75% of children and young adults consume caffeine every day. So where's it all coming from? Well, until fairly recently, children's main source of caffeine was soda. However, ever since researchers started drawing the connection between sugary drinks and obesity, soda consumption has actually been on the decline. Today, children, especially teenagers, are turning to coffee and energy drinks, both of which generally pack a lot more caffeine than soda. For example, a can of soda typically has 25 to 35 milligrams. Diet drinks have actually even more. Energy drinks have 80 to 350 milligrams. A regular cup of coffee has 95 to 200 milligrams. And one of those fancy coffee house drinks can have upwards of 300 or 400 milligrams. Caffeine is also being added to all sorts of products, according to the FDA. But more on that in just a sec. Here's why caffeine is such a problem for kids. It interferes with sleep patterns. On average, school kids ages 6 to 13 need 9 to 11 hours of sleep every night. Teens can get by with an hour less, but caffeine, which we all know is a stimulant, 
can keep kids awake later and make the sleep they do get less restful. Caffeine starts working within minutes of being ingested, and its effects can last as long as six hours. Oral health. Caffeine is often acidic and can increase the risk of developing cavities. Caffeine drinks may also stain the teeth. It's addictive. Over time, some people may have to increase the amount of caffeine they consume to get the same effect. And for most caffeine addicts, abruptly quitting causes headaches and other withdrawal symptoms. Diet. Caffeine can suppress the diet, which is why some use it to lose weight. But for growing children who need to be eating plenty of healthy foods, that may not be a good thing. On the other hand, high levels of caffeine are often associated with high calorie counts. For example, at Starbucks, a venti-sized mocha frappuccino has 500 calories, a caramel brulee latte has 540, and a venti iced peppermint white chocolate mocha has 660 calories. Unforeseen effects. Caffeine affects the neurologic and cardiovascular systems, which are still developing in children and teens. Generally speaking, it's best not to tamper with developing systems. Finally, it can cause indigestion and muscle tremors. So what can we do? Well, start by talking with your kids about caffeine in much the same way as you talk with them about drugs and cigarettes. Explain the health risks and why they should stay away from it. Next, read labels. In products where caffeine occurs naturally, such as coffee beans, it won't be listed. But if it's added, it must be included on the label. Today, added caffeine is showing up in foods such as gum, candy, chips, ice cream, sunflower seeds, and even oatmeal. And in non-food products, including deodorant, toothpaste, and lip balm. Got a question or a comment for us here at Positive Parenting? We'd love to hear it. You can drop us a line through the website, MrDad.com, which is also where you can catch up on all the episodes of Positive Parenting that you haven't heard and where you can find a lot of articles and advice and a lot more stuff, and it's all free. MrDad.com. This is Mario Andretti. You know me as a race car driver, but I'm also a Meals on Wheels volunteer. I've raced against the sport's biggest personalities, but I've never met more vibrant, amazing people than the seniors served by Meals on Wheels. You can make a difference by dropping off a hot meal and saying a quick hello. So, America, let's do lunch. Volunteer your lunch break at americaletsdolunch.org. This message brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council. Hello, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott, founder of MrDad.com. It's great to have you here. If you're a boomer or a Gen X parent, here's a newsflash for you. Your teen years were nothing like your own teen's teen years. According to my guest for this part of today's show, if you think your teenager is more stressed, anxious, and depressed than you were back in your day, you're right. If you think that's because he's lazy or weak or she's spoiled and self-centered, you're wrong. Our kids are clearly suffering in unprecedented numbers, just as we would have had we grown up in their world. And by their world, we mean one that's dominated by technology and cyberbullying, by pop culture that glorifies celebrities and violence, and by brutal peer pressure that's fueled by social media, booze, stronger weed, and meaner sex. When you add in some daunting academic demands, poor nutrition, chronic sleep deprivation, and having the brain of an adolescent, well, it's no wonder that so many teens feel helpless, and it's no wonder that so many parents feel helpless. Parents want to help, of course, but how? 
Well, it turns out that the key is resilience, which helps teens handle difficulty, overcome obstacles, and bounce back from setbacks. I'm Armin Brutt. We'll start talking about resilience and how we could give our overwhelmed teenagers a lot more of it when Positive Parenting continues right after this. You're not wired to have a response to this sound. You're neutral to it. And you can hear it repeatedly without feeling anything. But when we introduce a new stimulus, save the food, we've achieved pulling a natural or inborn response from you. Save the food, because 40% of all food in the U.S. never gets eaten. Save the food. Cook it, store it, share it. Just don't waste it. For tips and recipes, visit savethefood.com. Brought to you by NRDC and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Michael Bradley, who's the author of Crazy Stressed, Saving Today's Overwhelmed Teens with Love, Laughter, and the Science of Resilience. Michael, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Let's talk about how, well, actually, you, you make a contention that today's teenagers are the most anxious in 50 years. Correct. Talk about that. How, how is that even being assessed? We have some uh, good <clears throat> good data that um, where, where somebody went through the archive test reviews to diagnose anxiety and depression over five decades, and those numbers pretty clearly state what most of us in the business have known, which is this is the most depressed and anxious set of teenagers we've ever seen recently. And how is that being measured, though? I mean, it's, it's in it's to, to the lay person. Well, uh, the the tests that we use to clinically diagnose this. Um, have been archived over 50 years. And, and that was the most reliable data that uh, a woman named Jean Twenge came up with oh, yeah. uh, that showed this trend uh, where there has been a pretty precipitous drop in uh, also in teen resilience that corresponds with this increase in anxiety and depression. Well, Jean Twenge also wrote about Generation Me and a, an increase over that same period of time in essentially self-centeredness. Are are the two related? Yeah, they are. Um, the The culture has shifted so that kids are more self-centered. Their goals tend to be more extrinsic and materialistic. Um, but they're also living in a culture that pretty much promotes a lot of negative values, things that deteriorate resilience in teenagers. It's kind of a perfect storm we've got going. And uh, ultimately, the, the worst statistic really depicts it powerfully, which is, teen suicide is pretty much off the charts. In the same 50 years, teen suicide is up four to 500 percent, and the general population is up perhaps 100 percent. Wow. Yes. That's pretty amazing. So you have, and I mean, it's, it seems like they intuitively wouldn't go together. You'd think that self-centered kids would have higher self-esteem and that they wouldn't be as depressed, that they would be at least full of themselves and, and thinking that they're better off. But you're saying, I mean, is there a causation there or just a correlation, I guess, is what it comes down to? Well, again, we can only prove the correlation, but your question is excellent in that we've promoted a, a erroneous concept of happiness for teenagers. That's the, you know, uh, another book that's come out uh, is called The Unselfie, 
um, again, talking about the self-centeredness of teenagers, it, that, that narcissism does not promote true happiness. True happiness is not yippee yippee yay yay. I get everything I want, which a lot of these kids are working to do. True happiness has to do with being engaged in the world, giving <clears throat> as well as receiving, uh, doing hard things. Uh, feeling good about yourself actually comes from doing significant work, having purpose and passion. It does not come from having a lot of material goods. Now, it seems like you could have, in a parallel world, you could have this this uh, narcissism, and you could also have the depression and the anxiety that's going along with it. But the interesting question to me is, what happened to resilience in there? That it, it seems people have been able over long periods of time to recover from depression and anxiety and they've been able to tell themselves that they can pick themselves up and dust themselves off you know the the whole thing and parents have been better at getting these messages across so where did resilience go how did it disappear well we, we speculate that there's been sort of a polarization of parenting styles we have more stressed families than we've had in five decades single parent families parents that are struggling financially that have little to do with their kids. So you could call that the zero on the 10 scale. And we also have the helicopter parents. They're enmeshed, they're super engaged. They manage their children's lives meticulously. They plan them, they run them from activity to activity. And it turns out that resilience is not built in either of those parenting styles. It's built in the four, five, six range, really where you seek to help kids learn to control themselves. You don't abandon them, but you also don't rush in and take charge of their lives. That's something that I think we've lost in the parenting world. So we're talking about the kids being more depressed and more anxious. <clears throat> How does that play out, though? I mean, I think as people think that they understand what depression and anxiety are, and you probably would recognize many of the symptoms, but how does it play out over the long term for, for teenagers who are growing up with that deficit? Well, it, again, as part of the perfect storm issue, these uh, pathologies of anxiety and depression hit them at incredibly early ages where they're very fragile neurologically. Uh, their brains are just beginning the most advanced development of their lives. So they're overstressed at a time when they don't really have <clears throat> the wiring, let alone the maturity, to be able to sort out the stressors and respond to them. Their, their culture is is really a hyper-adrenalized one, largely because of the electronics. They get pounded with excessive stimulation um, 20 hours a day. Uh, they're just glued to screens, and having excessive stimulation, being unable to sort out your life, find meaning and purpose, and by the way, they're sleep-deprived. They're getting less sleep than any other generation of teenagers. You have this perfect mix to build anxiety and depression, and to make kids feel like life is just not worth living. And then that plays out in the higher suicide rate that you're talking about. Exactly. I mean, they, they, they take it quite literally that it's not, not worth living. They do, because the teenage brain, particularly in younger adolescents, it's more a child brain than an adult brain. So they're very much in the moment. They're very existential. So when a 13-year-old feels that everything has gone black and there's no point, that is what they feel, and they often then proceed to, I want to end my life, whereas an adult, you or I could say, yeah, this really sucks right now, but I've been here before. I know the sun will come up tomorrow. Kids do not have that maturity and that resilience that adults have to handle these sorts of stressors. 
Who's responsible for instilling resilience in kids? Oh, great question. I think as a culture, uh, ironically, when we paid less attention to kids, if you would, um, they were more resilient back in the day. It was not a joke. You know, my mother would throw us out of the house in the morning in the summertime and door was closed. You came home for dinner. I, I don't necessarily advocate that, but it was a resilience-building exercise. We had to negotiate our world. We learned a lot. Today, parents go to the other extreme where they, if they can, they typically over-organize a child's life and run them from activity to activity. We don't permit kids to get bored. <laughs> turns out that boredom is very therapeutic. Um, allowing a child to not have something to do as long as they're not into dangerous activities is critical because then they start to reflect, they generate their own activities, um, and they think, whereas if we stuck them in some structured learning activity, they're not really thinking. They're absorbing information and right. spitting it back. And how much do you think the, the idea, and this goes along with the helicopter parenting and some of the other modalities of parenting that are, are off on one end of the scale, where the kids are not learning how to fail and learning how to, to get back up and recover from their mistakes, which is, is a different definition of resilience? Yeah, we don't permit failure. We decided that failure with our kids is somehow a pathology, a toxin, and we've forgotten that. I mean, you know, I, in my own life, I learned much more from my failures, much more shaped from my losses than from my successes. And we have somehow decided that will not happen. We don't allow our kids to fail at school, to get cut from a baseball team. Uh, we don't even allow them to lose a friend. Often parents will jump in and start to argue with the friend's parent that you have to remain friends with my child. That's insane. That's where we have lost um, the resilience capability of normal day-to-day -day living for an adolescent. I remember having these conversations with my kids who are slightly out of the teen years at this point, but about jobs and them not wanting to do certain kinds of jobs because they thought it was beneath them. And my saying, you know, I, I can't even count how many jobs that I've had, but some of the horrible jobs you learn a tremendous amount from, like I never want to do this again, is, is a very valuable lesson that you don't learn if you've been coaxed through or pushed through all the way. Yeah. And part of that is tolerating frustration, <clears throat> and that's something else that kids have largely lost the capability of doing. And as parents, we've decided that they shouldn't be frustrated. They should be you know, pleasantly occupied all the time. But tolerating frustration is a key ingredient in success in life. Michael Bradley is the author of Crazy Stressed, Saving Today's Overwhelmed Teens with Love, Laughter, and the Science of Resilience. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Michael Bradley about the book and get into some of these strategies and tactics that we can use to help overcome some of this. I'm Armand Brock. You're listening to Positive Parenting. Chris, you're not acting like a grown-up in our relationship. M2, M2. There's your comic book collection, the race car bed. I'm young at heart, but I put money into my 401k every paycheck. I'm taking control over my financial life, and that feels pretty grown-up to me. Put away a few bucks, feel like a million bucks. For free ideas and easy ways to save, go to feedthepig.org. That's feedthepig.org. Are those footy pajamas? This message brought to you by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Ad Council.
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brat. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Michael Bradley, who's the author of Crazy Stressed. And we kind of set the stage in the first part of the show. I want to get into some of the strategies and tactics that you've, that you've got in the book about things that we can do to overcome this lack of resilience or the disappearing resilience that kids are, are just not getting. And you have a really intriguing subtitle to one of the chapters, Chairs Have Four-Legged Soldiers and Teens Need Seven. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, the, uh, the researchers in the field of resilience have come up with seven, car- seven uh, kind of clusters of activities and assets that we find in teenagers who do have resilience. And those, um, it turns out those characteristics are what we find when we study successful kids. For years we've studied unsuccessful kids, uh, and now we're finding a whole new line of inquiry, which is what about the kids who do great? in this crazy culture. Uh, why is that? How is that? And we find that they tend to have these assets um, that stand out. Ken Ginsberg uh, really pioneered this research with the American Academy of Pediatrics and identified you know, these, these seven clusters of activities and assets. And they seem to be the key uh, in terms of summarizing them. It, it turns out that it, it really is redefining our mission statement as parents that we have to stop attempting to control our kids, except in a life-threatening situation, but we have to change our mission, rather, to teaching our children to control themselves. And that means not solving their problems whenever it's a non-lethal situation to absolutely step back and hand the power to the teenager. Say, frankly, I don't know what you should do. What do you think you should do? And helping them talk it out, make a decision. And then the key part, Armin, is they must handle the consequences. If they decide to skip classes because they want to go to a sports activity, they have to deal that through with a teacher. The parent doesn't write a bogus note to get them off the hook. But the parent has to be involved more as a coach and advisor, but not as the decision maker. Well, how does that work in real life when you have, perhaps you have a 14 or 15-year-old, and as a parent you haven't done that, that you've been... I don't want to say guilty, that's the wrong the wrong phrase, but you've been a helicopter parent or a snowplow parent, and you have fallen into the trap of doing the things that are generally supported by the culture these days, of, of taking care of your kids and not allowing them to fail and stuff like that. No, I'm not, not making a judgment here, but just say that that's the kind of parent that you are, and listening to this interview and saying, you know, whew, I really need to change some stuff. How do you start? I think you start with a conversation with your child. You head out to the coffee shop and say, you know, I've been thinking about this, reflecting on my own life, talking to my peers, and I I think I've been over-controlling in your life. You know, I I do have some rules. I have a few red lines. You know, you can't do drugs. Don't want you to become a parent. Um, You know, not into violence. But aside from those things, I I am going to pull back. For example, this summer, instead of doing the enrichment camps that I always kind of send you to, what would you like to do? Um, why don't you go online and take a look at some of the gap experiences that they have? Um, a lot of parents worry about use of time, and they're thinking that they have to kind of give their kid every advantage they can to get them into an elite school, elite high school, elite college. And it turns out that going to elite schools is by no means a guarantee of success or happiness in life. 
it's more about finding your own purpose and passion. And the only way that happens is for people to explore, to make decisions, <clears throat> to make mistakes, to do things that were a complete waste of time. But they chose it. They did the decision-making, and they bore the consequences. That stuff is incredibly strengthening and resilience-building, ultimately helping people to make good decisions. My son Ross, when he was 13, decided social studies was a government plot to control his mind and announced <laughs> he wasn't going to cooperate in the program. And he's you know, gifted kid and all like that. And Sydney and I, my wife, just you know, looked at each other and said, cool. And he looked at his odd, you're not going to make me do my homework? We said, no. The teacher called us in, ultimately, for the, the grade conference and said, if I did it by the numbers, Ross would get an F. And he was inviting us to argue the grade. And we said, well, if he earned an F, we wanted to get an F. And this teacher, I'll never forget, put down his pencil and said, in nine years of teaching with a first set of parents at this school, it didn't argue for a better grade for their child. Uh, huh. And it, it really was a lightning bolt moment for us because we very much wanted Ross to make a decision like that to bear the consequences for it right. so that he would learn. And, in fact, he did learn. And we did not compel him to do better. We did not argue for him to do better. We let him handle the decision from beginning to end, and he learned a hell of a lot. Well, here's the complication there that I'm that I'm wondering about. Is You talk a lot about brain development and how the brain is not fully developed until the mid-20s or whatever. So how th there's a, a gray area there with as parents to say, look, my kid maybe isn't capable of making a lifetime decision at the age of 14, so maybe I need to step in and guide things a little bit. Yeah, well, that's where you get into the art form of parenting, and every child is a different book, and every parent has to make that decision. But when you ask in general, you know, what is it that we're doing too much of, it is taking too much control. Um, I did a, a training session at, for uh, CEOs of you know, Fortune 500 companies for their hiring practices because they said for decades they would hire the top 1% of 1% from Stanford and MIT and so forth, and it isn't working. They said that these are kids who are unbelievable students and unbelievable athletes, but when they put them to work, that often they sit at their desks and wait for the next syllabus, whereas the kid they take from the state school who got some C's and maybe had a brush with the law, but who took that terrible job, as you're talking about, chopping onions in a diner, that kid would roll up his sleeves. He knew how to improvise. He, he knew how to do open field running. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, so, that's really a, a very common thing. I remember working on a, a ghostwriting project with somebody, and we were talking about this exact idea that there was some colleges, I think it was in Washington, the University of Washington, was not, oh, no, it was, it was companies in Seattle that were not hiring people who had graduated from the University of Washington. And they were saying the reason is that these kids are coming out of there and they can't think. They yep. get great grades. They've done all sorts of wonderful things. They've built, uh, you know, built shelters in Costa Rica and, uh, you know, all the things that you're supposed to do. But they just don't know how to think on their own. Exactly. And often they're afraid to think. They're afraid to make decisions because they haven't done that and they haven't developed those skills. And also learned that screwing up is how we learn ultimately to succeed. They've been taught and that's where we've let them down, that you must always win. You can never lose. And again, failure is incredibly therapeutic to teenagers in the proper dose, in the proper tone. 
So let me get back to this idea of the, the gray area between letting kids have the, the results of their actions endure the consequences and stepping in a little. I mean, if you have a kid who genuinely, say your son, for example, it wasn't just social studies, that he decided that everything was a plot and he was not going to go to school at all. You you would say as a responsible parent probably that's not a good idea. That's gonna you know that's a middle school thing. That's gonna affect the kind of high school you get into, which could in turn affect the colleges and and many other things. Well, what do you what correct. do you do? Well, that's correct. And and what you do is you try to use incentives, but you also try versus punishment and compelling. You try the discussion. See, people are so focused on the outcome or the decision. They, they miss the magic of the discussion, of the sitting down and saying, well, Ross, what about school is making you so upset? What is happening there? What can you do about it? What do you think you should do? You know, have you talked to other people? In other words, you turn the decision into a project. Only at the last moment might you have to step in and say, well, sorry, but I, you know, I read the state laws and you're required to go to school, so that's it. But you don't cut to the chase. Anytime a kid wants to do something, particularly if it's crazy, you don't jump in and say, absolutely not. Are you nuts? You're going to school. You rather open it up. Again, head to the coffee shop and say, tell me what's going on. What are your thoughts on this? What options do you see? What is the point of school? See, we lecture kids all the time, and it is a complete waste of time and effort. Worse than that, it frustrates them. It has no meaning. We tell them things when their minds are not open to a particular subject. But when a kid wants to drink beer, wants to do drugs, wants to drop out of school, their mind is open. That's a magic moment. Now you can say, cool, you brought the subject up. Now let's go talk about it. And that's when you get those wheels turning about, well, what can school do for you? Have you researched what people make who don't complete high school versus do complete college? Yeah. Have yeah. you researched what school can do in terms of freedom? Because money actually is freedom. So now they're listening because they brought it up. They have the agenda, and the information is relevant. It's not just a futile lecture. Michael Bradley is the author of Crazy Stressed, Saving Today's Overwhelmed Teens with Love, Laughter, and the Science of Resilience. Michael, thanks so much. Great to have you. Thank you, Armin. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.